Hello and welcome to RipperCast, Off the Shelf, a true crime book club podcast. Today we're discussing the book Mr. Crippen, Cora, and the Body in the Basement by Matthew Conium. Usually this would be the place where I tell you that if you haven't yet picked up and read your copy of the book to hit pause and go do so because there will be spoilers. But I'm not going to do that this time. In part, because if you live in the States, the price for this book is practically extortionate, and nobody rates this book very highly or feels that it's good value for the bunny. To be worth $22.49 for the Kindle version of the book, it would have had to have scored all fives from all four of our reviewers. And, well, let's just say that did not happen. In fact, I feel at this time that I need to give a cautionary warning to our listeners. If you have small children in the room, you should probably scooch them out because we will be using a profuse amount of profanity in describing some aspects of this book. Although actually, if you're listening to a murder podcast with young children in the room, I think there's probably bigger concerns than the F-bombs that we're going to be launching. But just so you know, there will be some F-bombs launched. So, disclaimer issued, let's get started. In 1910, a woman by the name of Cora Crippen went missing. Although she was married at the time, her disappearance was not reported to the police by her husband, but instead by some friends of hers. When a detective by the name of Walter Dew went round to her home, he found her husband had moved his mistress, one Ethel Lenève, into their marital home and had been happily playing house for months completely unconcerned with his wife's disappearance. Within a few days of the police knocking on his door, however, he and his mistress would be fleeing for America, attempting and failing to outrun justice. Joining me today in what will no doubt be a lively discussion is RipperCast host Jonathan Menges, as well as co-host of the podcast, Sherlock from Adler to Amberley, John Reese, as well as a guest book club member, Mark Ripper, author of The Case of the Salmon Sandwiches, as well as The Moat Farm Mystery. Welcome, gentlemen, and thank you for being here today. Hello. Morning. So, um, so give us your general thoughts on the book. Mark, let's start with you. What did you think? Um, so my, my first thought is and we maybe need to sort of talk about this further later but I, I feel like this this shouldn't really be anybody's first Crippen book that if you're picking up this book knowing little to nothing about the case already this probably is not the book for you um, and there are other books that will kind of fill in some of the blanks that that this book leaves behind because it's not really aimed at the at the first time Crippen reader um, it's also, you know, quite a specific work in as much as the, I think it, it's probably not a spoiler to say that, that the thesis of the book is that the conviction of Crippen in 1910 was unsafe uh, and that the reasons for thinking, or at least some of the reasons for thinking so, relate to DNA findings from the 21st century. And that is a very particular angle on the Crippen case, which that's not going to be everybody's starting point. It's also, I think, a very difficult thesis to sustain, but that's that's what we talk about. That's what we talk about here. 
And I agree with you on that. It should definitely not be the first Crippen book. It was mine. And I would agree with that assessment wholeheartedly. John Reese, what about you? What do you think? Um, Well, well, full disclosure here. um, I still have half a chapter of the book I have yet to read um, because I I have struggled quite a bit in this book because, again, this is the first proper Crippen book I've actually read. My knowledge of the Crippen case comes from... um, general overviews of crimes at the time and um do um what was do's uh contribution obviously so um you know i struggled quite a bit in this book i didn't think it had a particularly cohesive uh narrative um it just seemed to be a series of rants structured around the vague timeline of the investigation and subsequent trial uh 100 agreement there as well jonathan Mendez, what about you I agree with John and Mark that this shouldn't be the first Crippen book you read. It's kind of like if you were uh, going into the Jack the Ripper case and the first book you read was the the book uh, naming Lewis Carroll as the Ripper. Um, <laughs> it, it's not a good starting off point. I'd even go so far as to say is read every single thing you can get your hands on about the Crippen case before you read this book. I'd even wait until Hallie Rubenhold's book comes out, whenever that might be, and read that before you read this one. I really have to say that I pretty much hated this book. And as John kind of um, mentioned, the author's uh, writing style um, being one of just going on rants was really off-putting to me. He comes across as very condescending, egotistical, Um, angry almost even at um, anyone who might doubt any of uh, his ideas and that was a big turnoff I found it hard to even read the thing opening it up to any page you get this his the voice he chose to use to write in and maybe he's not an asshole in real life but for some reason the voice he chose to write this book in is one of just like really condescending Mr. Know-it-all. And there's problems with that. He doesn't know it all. And he, but he would like the readers of of the book to believe that he knows it all. We'll get into some more of that later. Yeah, um, I agree with everything that everybody said about the book. Um, You know, in addition to that, my criticisms of the book are from the writing of the book. Um, This is one of the books where it could have benefited so much from a good editor. You know, one of the the main criticisms I had about Dean Job's book was that it it was failed by an editorial decision that I felt uh, took away from what was a really great book. Like I liked Dean Job books. I thought it was a, I thought it was a great book that was failed by one single editor decision that took it from a great book to a good book but it was a solid book it was it was a good book and this one was just failed by a complete lack of editing from just word choices where you could tell uh, that the author had absolutely no idea what that word actually meant. Like he he had a vague concept of what the word meant, but he used it completely inaccurately, and and it just rang falsely in in how he used it in a sentence. To he would try to elevate his writing in a way that that rang falsely. Like he could have been a very solid good writer. But he, he tried to elevate his writing in a way that did not ring true 
And I found it really ironic because he had some good writing buried in there, but he was badly served by the lack of a good editor who could just honestly look at it and go, look, you know, man, you need to edit this. You need to, this word is just wrong. Like this word, it, it does not mean what you think it means. This is, this is not good. And it was really funny. He was talking about Cora in there at one point and, and about how her, her acting did not, um, resonate with the audience because she wasn't an authentic actor and it basically said how the audience could always tell when a performance was not authentic because there's this indefinable quality of authenticity that the audience always recognizes and when a when a performer doesn't have it the audience sees it and I was like dude, that's your writing. That's your writing right there. It's not authentic because you're trying too hard to elevate it. Like there was this one place where he was talking about suburbia and he had this really highfalutin uh, sentence where he was like, oh, I wrote it down. Like, I want to find it because my brain uh, is is like mush right now. But it was like suburbia. It is the place that defines itself, not by where it is, but where it isn't, and not by what it is, but what it isn't. It is the somewhere that is nowhere, the is that isn't. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Is that, am I supposed to be wowed by the profundity of that statement? Because, oh, dude, I am not. I am not wowed. That was just bad. I, I have a 30 minute rant about the writing that, that that might show up later on. But yeah, that was my main problem with it, along with all the other problems just regarding the case, which let's get into. Let's talk about the DNA, because I know that's that's the that's the central premise of this is the DNA. And I, I wanted to actually give a specific example of what you're kind of referring to when you were talking about how he tried to sound highfalutin but it just didn't work because you could tell that he wasn't highfalutin, (laughs) Um, if that's okay, Allie. So so it's like when he tackles the different subjects in the book, he tries to take on the persona of someone who is actually an expert in those subjects. So when you're talking about when he was writing about suburbia, he tried to write in a certain way. When he's writing about the DNA testing, he then puts on his I'm a forensic scientist hat, um, like he knows more than anyone else about the subject. And then when he goes into breaking down the actual legal arguments with the case, he puts his lawyer hat on and tries to sound like an attorney and, and things like that. <clears throat> and, it, and, it doesn't, and it doesn't really work. It, it sounds fake, um, as you had said. So when he talks about the trial and, and, um, or, and, or, and then he goes, he goes through the arguments that um, he really dis- dislikes people who, who believe that Crippen is guilty of this crime. I want to state that right off the bat. And that's clear as you read the book go from beginning to end. I mean, he really has disdain for anyone who would believe that uh, Crippen actually murdered Cora. And so when he goes through the arguments for the prosecution and the points that people who believe that Crippen was responsible for the crime would bring up. He then presents the counter argument, the defense's side, his version of the defense's side, what the defense's argument would be 
were he an attorney? And I don't believe that this guy is an attorney. But then he, but so when he, um, when he goes through and lists all these points, he, um, and he says like point one, you know, pe- people who are, who believe in Crippen's innocence uh, would say point one, Crippen innocent of all. That's a possibility. Point two, Crippen, his wife's murderer, but innocent of all connection to the remains in the cellar. Crippen, not his wife's murderer, but responsible for the remains in the cellar. And so he doesn't say Crippen was his wife's murderer. He just says Crippen, his wife's murderer. Like he shortens it in an attempt to sound um, lawyerly, I guess. But as a reader, when you're reading this, you're thinking to yourself, is that just bad writing? Or yeah, he was trying he, to do. Is like he, he was, doing it intentionally, or he was trying be- to do like an outline of a case, like a summarizing an outline of a case, which I didn't love. Like, like I, bu- you don't need bullet points and shortened syntax when you're writing a book. Yeah, I mean, this isn't like an outline. This is these aren't notes you're you're jotting down. You know, I mean, it, it's just odd. I didn't love that part. I had more. I had more of an issue when, um, when he was doing things like, and of course, like again, brain total tapioca right now. I had more of an issue when he would do stuff like he he would just misuse words. He would use words where he kind of knew what the the meaning of them was, but he didn't actually know the meaning of the word, and he would slightly misuse them in the context that he would put them in. Like when he was talking about. Um, Ethel going away for seven months to possibly have a second pregnancy, he would say, had she actually given birth during those seven incognito months? That's not what the word incognito means. Like incognito means you actively conceal your identity. It doesn't just mean you go away for seven months. Like he would miss you. He would kind of know what the word incognito means, but that's not what the word incognito means. And he would use it wrong in the sentence. And he would do it all the time. If you slightly misuse a word here or there, it could just mean, you know, you're playing with the language. But if you do it all the time, and, and, you know, more importantly, if you do it without context, it means you're bad at vocabulary. And he would do this all the time, all the time. And he would do it with literary devices and framing as well, because he would just drop in, like, in trying to sound highfalutin and learned, he would try to use literary framing, like, oh my God, there was one sentence where I swear, if it wasn't a Kendall, I would have thrown the book against the wall. He, he, you know, he, he would be like, oh alliteration alliteration is a it's a smart brain thing to use i'm going to use me some alliteration so he decided he was going to use alliteration and he came up with this sentence that was the worst freaking thing i've ever read in a book where he said he was talking about do and he was referring back to do and being in the ripper case and having possibly seen the body of mary kelly and and this this one sentence sums up all the problems with the writing in this book because it contains every single problem in the book one he uses words wrong two he uses literary techniques that he has no business coming close to and he it also includes dropping in things that he drops in with no previous context it's all the problems with the book it's not the worst examples of all of these problems but it contains all of the problems so the sentence is something like this i might get a word wrong here or there but it's something like um 
do, he's talking about do referring back to the Mary Kelly scene and then finding Cora's remains in the cellar. And um, he would, of course, be reminded of this when he came across another mass of mangled flesh, instituting still another mass media manhunt in 1910. Okay, so we have the literary technique of alliteration, which is mass of mangled flesh instituting still another mass media manhunt, which is horrifically bad in the fact that if you're going to use alliteration, don't repeat the same freaking word of mass mangled flesh and mass media manhunt. You don't repeat the same freaking word of mass and mass because that's just lazy. Like there's thousands of words that begin with M. Pick a different one. So it's just bad. Two, he misuses the phrase mass media because you can't have a mass media manhunt in 1888 or 1910 because you can't have a mass media manhunt because in order to have a mass media manhunt, mass media has to exist. And mass media is a specific concept of more than one media. And the only media that existed in those time periods was newspapers. Radio didn't exist. Television didn't exist. Internet didn't exist. Ergo, mass media didn't exist. You can't have mass media when there's only a medium. One, singular. <laughs> Drives me batshit crazy. Don't use a term if you don't know what it means. And then again, he hadn't introduced the concept of a singular mass media manhunt or a manhunt of the Jack the Ripper case. So what are you talking about with another mass media manhunt when I don't know about the former media manhunt that had previously existed? And maybe in that case, you know, the reader can infer, you know, okay, Jack the Ripper manhunt. I don't need any additional context. I can get it there. But there would be other times where the reader definitely needed some additional context and he would not provide it. Like there was one time he was talking about Cora and her marriage and he said the statement in its entirety was um, bitterness would be the only fruit of her marriage thanks to Cora's absent ovaries. And I was like, wait, her absent ovaries? Where are her ovaries? Where have they gone to? he just he drops in these ideas without any context whatsoever and doesn't explain them and it's just such appallingly bad writing that I was constantly wanting to throw the book against the wall but I didn't want to break my Kindle if it had been an actual book I probably would have but again sorry bad writing rant I apologize go on your faces by the way are <laughs> Yeah, it's very difficult to know how to follow that, really. <laughs> um, I mean, we do have, uh, just to go back to, to, to remember that, that halcyon time before Ali started that rant, let's go back to one of those, one of the themes that emerged from our previous discussion. Um, so, so there is, there is this, this, other, um, this other paradox that crops up in the book where, um, where the author has, has quite a bit to say about homeopathic medicine and all the things that he has to say about homeopathic medicine are completely accurate and, and correct that it's it's a scam that has no therapeutic value etc etc all of that stuff is completely true and I'm behind him 100% with all of that um Trippin, of course being a sort of a doctor working in homeopathy um with extracts and 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 tinctures of things that 
we're probably going to do his patient no good at all. So we have this sort of this 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 completely, as, as far as I'm concerned, justified rant about the pseudoscience of homeopathy, and then we have a few chapters on the DNA results, where effectively we are told as readers, if you question these DNA results, then you are a fool. And he does, I think, as John as John said, John Menger said earlier, it, it is quite condescending sometimes when an author tells you this is what you think and this is why you're wrong and 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 that doesn't always sit well with me but if I think if we are going to and I think we absolutely should give plenty of scrutiny to homeopathy as a purported science I think we can then justify giving the same amount of scrutiny to these very controversial DNA results. So what do you guys think is the because I have my opinion of the DNA testing. So maybe we should give a breakdown of the DNA for our listeners who don't know. So basically, there was a slide taken of the the flesh that was found in the cellar back in 1910. Um, A slide was sent to a lab in America. They did DNA test results on it. The results came back as being male. They found a Y chromosome, ergo, they are saying that the the body could not have been uh, Cora Crippens, ergo the body, the crime could not have been that of murder of his wife, ergo Crippen was innocent. So what do you guys think of this? I have my opinion. I'll let you guys. So so I set it up with like a little bit more background on the how how the testing of the slide even came about. Sure, because I'm I sure think it's somebody... important for our listeners to know that this is all the brainchild of John Trestrail, who is poison expert, author of a few books. He has believed for decades that Crippen was innocent. It's one of one of his pet theories has always been that Crippen um, was wrongly convicted of the murder of Cora. Um, so, in order to prove this theory, he enlisted the help of a genealogist named Beth Wills, giving her the the uh, assignment to go out and find a living descendant of the matrilineal line of Cora Crippens in order to do testing, in order to prove John Trestrell's theory that the remains in the cellar were not Cora's. So from the very beginning, and then Beth Wills went on various genealogical message boards trying to find a descendant of Cora Crippen's mother, openly stating that it's because John Trestrail believes that Crippen is innocent, okay? She was able to find him, able to find a living descendant of one of Cora's sisters, Bertha, and then the... uh, there's actually nine s- slides of Chorus Flash that are still housed at the Royal London Hospital Archives and Museum. They were only allowed access to one of these nine slides. Eventually, they found, I don't know how many people they went through to ask, but Dr. Foran from Michigan State University, who is in the zoology department, to conduct the testing on these slides for free. Foran oversaw uh, his students at Michigan State University testing the DNA from this one slide that they were provided and ended up getting results that they have first announced in the summer of 2007 
were not chorus, proving John Trestrell's theory that he set out to prove all along, hallelujah. That was splashed all over the newspapers. And then it was about eight months later that a documentary aired in the UK in which the remains were announced to not only not be chorus, but to be that of a man. And then, and then a few weeks later, that documentary with some alterations uh, and actually additions from the version shown in the UK played in the United States. So that, that's the history of the tests on the DNA in a nutshell. Can I uh, ask a very quick question here, uh, Jonathan? Um, do we know that foreign's definitely in the zoological department because I found a lot of published research of his on um, extracting DNA from human skeletal remains, mitochondrial DNA in skeletal remains. There is some stuff on DNA in tortoise shell turtles um, as well, but most of it does seem to be on human forensics from what I can see of his published research. Well, when in, in the, um, it took several years for Foran to produce a white paper, it was, it's not even a white paper, to, to publish anything other than the press release um, that appeared on Michigan State University's website. So the testing was done in 2007. It wasn't until 2010 that what's called a case report was published in the Journal of Forensic Science, in which his credentials are stated as Forensic Science Program School of Criminal Justice and Department of Zoology. And then Foran ended up getting into a, a little bit of trouble with uh, sexual harassment allegations against a few of his students at the University of Michigan State. And I believe in those, the reports of the, the sexual harassment allegations that ended up leading to him resigning in disgrace referred to him as being a zoology professor. I don't know. That, that's all I really know of his credentials. I mean, just yeah, looking, I mean, looking through his, his list of published works, which is on the internet, he, he seems to start his career very much in the sort of genetics of animals. So there's, yeah, that's what I'm finding as well, Mark. Yeah, looking back in, as far as the 80s, which is quite a while ago, um, sea urchins, um, apes, fishes, mice, gophers... Um, and so on and so on and so on. It does seem like over time, you get the Crippen thing is in two thousand and uh, two thousand and nine. That's the that's the paper that Jonathan was just referring to, and then the very next one in two thousand and ten is about blowflies. So, <laughs> uh, so yeah, uh, and it it does seem to trend towards DNA as you sort of go through later into his career and. And most of those would appear to, or many of those would appear to me to be about human DNA, but there is also stuff there from 2016 about turtles and quite a bit about soil. It's, it's so, like in, in the early noughties, he starts going towards more yeah. criminal-based uh, yeah. DNA, like the Boston Strangler case, and then even there's some animal-based stuff there. So. Yeah. I don't know if there is a. I, I, supp I suppose DNA is DNA, regardless of species, isn't it? You know, if you're an expert on DNA analysis, surely there's some kind of crossover on all biological life. But uh, again, I'm you know, not an expert. I'm just theorizing there. Well, I think what what we do have is we have the, these DNA results which haven't been replicated by another laboratory, which 
is you know typically a problem um, yeah. for for the scientific me scientific method. Those that that uh, disagree with the results of the DNA because of the genealogical work, and that's something I'll get into when I want to discuss um, a, a part of the book that really pissed me off. But basically, those who who still believe in Crippen's guilt, which is everybody, you know, I from. Martin Fido, Stuart Evans, um, Nick Connell, the four of us. I mean, it, it, if, if you believe that Crippen, that this DNA excludes Crippen and, that, and, you, and you buy into the fact that the body in the cellar was that of a man, you are in a distinct minority. Um, but the, but the, for the people who do believe in his guilt, um, because of the genealogical work that was done in which they kind of mistakenly ended up testing the correct person against, the, they tried every effort possible to get it wrong, but they ended up stumbling into testing the right descendant. And that's an interesting story. We're faced with, um, th those of us who still believe in his guilt are faced with just basically what it would come down to is DNA contamination in the lab, Right which I assume can happen with you're testing a blowfish or if you're testing um, the remains of Cora Crippen. So it's not, I don't believe that it, it, his expertise in, in testing human DNA versus animal DNA is so much of a question. As, as Mark said, this test hasn't been replicated. They actually tested the same, they, he says that it's been duplicated and I believe the author does so in his book as well but they were only given one of nine slides. So when they reproduced the test in the lab to check that the results were, were correct, that it was actually male DNA, they were testing the same slide. But really when it comes down to, from what I understand, DNA contamination, although the remains were put through the ringer back in 1910 and, and how, who knows how many other times since then, but especially in 1910, as far as, the disinfectants, the handling and all that stuff. I don't believe that that's gonna really contaminate the DNA because what you got is, it, it's gonna be this, the, the, that, that would be surface level contamination. But when you dig into the actual skin to extract the DNA sample, you're looking at what is basically like an Oreo cookie. You're getting to the white stuff inside the Oreo cookie. And for that to um, come back as, as um, male DNA, and for thus, us that believe in his guilt, that would um, point towards contamination um, of the sample in Foran's lab. From my understanding, any of you have more knowledge about this, um, please feel free because I'm a poet major, not a, a science major. I, I, I don't really have any knowledge of it myself because the book doesn't give us much knowledge. You know, the author is quite content in spending pages and pages describing suburbia, waxwork models, um, or in-depth analysis of every film made on Crippen. But when it comes to the key thing of his argument that Crippen didn't do it, the DNA evidence, he basically quotes a couple of paragraphs and says, go read the paper yourself, fools. Hmm. Oh, I have a whole nother rant on that whole waxwork model, like writing <laughs> bit. I, I could go into well, what that. Do you, what do you think, Mark, um, about... Um, Basically, I was rambling to uh, my the gist of what I was trying to say is that those who believe in Crippen's guilt must take the one one of two opinions. One, the results that um, 
Michigan State University published in the journal Forensic Science were a lie and completely made up, or two, they were legitimate results, but reached through contamination of the DNA sample in the lab. Yeah, I, I think it would be, I, I'm not qualified to say whether I think it was one or the other, really. Um, but I think on the other side of it, those who think that the DNA results are legitimate and reliable, th this is where the author finds himself. He, he creates at least three other problems for himself, one of which is that all of the other circumstantial evidence needs to be accounted for, the second of which is Corey Crippen never reappears, and the third of which is he, ha he has to, he's got a, he's got a, he's now got a mass of male flesh in the basement at Hilldrop Crescent that he has to explain. And I think, so, so we, we now have not just one murder victim, but we have one missing person and one unknown murder. And it, it's, you end up with very convoluted assessment of the case if you have to disregard all of the circumstantial stuff and introduce a second or in theory, another murder and stop the murder that was the murder from being a murder anymore. Um, it's, it, I, I think that then we are talking, that's, that's where I think we get to where, that's where John is in the book, which is how are we going to be able to dismiss all the circumstantial evidence, keep Cora alive, murder somebody else and have all of this fit together that the jigsaw to me does not really complete itself well and he, he he doesn't really do a very good job of doing it when we got to the last chapter and he started doing the whole analysis i was like oh okay he's going here we go he's going to do this okay if he's going to say that this is not core in the basement then here here we go he's he's going to do this because as a woman, here here was my thing. I'm like, okay, let's say that this is this is not Cora in the basement. This is a woman in 1910. Why did she leave all of that jewelry? Because jewelry is money. There is not a single logical argument that you're going to make to for me that's going to convince me that a woman in 1910, given all the time in the world, when all she has to do is open up a valise, scoop her jewelry into it, and walk out the door. You're going to convince me that she left money just sitting there because jewelry was money. It's pawnable. You break a you break a you break a jewel out and 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 that's that's cash money. And she just left it behind and walked out the door when it's so very portable. No, you're Absolutely. not as well as she apparently wanted to deprive Crippen of all her money. Exactly. It's not going to happen. That woman did not walk out the door of her own free will. It did not happen. So Cora was dead. There, there, there is no question. She did not leave of her own volition. That woman was dead. So that's not even a question. So when, when, so that, that, that he had to dispense with, and he never did. He never, he never came up with a logical explanation for why she walked out the door without her money. And then, so my thing is, is when you're testing DNA, you're testing a woman is dead and missing. You've, there's a body in the basement. Her husband flees with his mistress. The logical and obvious conclusion is the body in the basement is the missing wife, right? If 100 years removed from that crime, you're testing that DNA, you're testing it with the foregone conclusion that you believe that that body is not the wife. You have a predetermined, as 
Jonathan said, Trestale believes that's not the missing wife. But why? Why are we testing this? Like the, the solution is already there. You're just testing this for, so if you believe that's not the wife, then you have to give me an alternative. You have to have an already logical conclusion that satisfies and you don't have an alternative conclusion that satisfies. So you want there to be a good story, but you're not providing me with the good story, which means you're trying to create a good story, which means I'm suspicious of your motives. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm suspicious of the motives. So then I have to trust implicitly in every single person in this chain of evidence. And then we get to the person who's doing the test. Now, this is where I have to give my bias disclaimer. I have a absolute complete bias against professors who are sexual predators of their students. I am completely biased against people who do this. I don't believe in their ethics. I don't trust them at all. So bias disclaimer, I don't trust these people at all. So when you tell me that the person involved, and I understand this has nothing to do with his reputation as a DNA expert, but I don't trust the, you have to be ethically unimpeachable in my opinion. If you're skeezy in one way, what's to say you're not skeezy in another way? It puts a doubt in my mind. Ethics matter to me. I believe in ethical unimpeachability. I believe in ethical impeachability. I believe that people either have ethics or they don't. I don't believe there's, oh, well, you can be ethical in this regard and unethical in this regard. I, I do believe that there are, yeah, well, if you're a little questionable here, you can be a little questionable in other ways. I do believe that. So again, I believe that there's, there's suspicious breaks in the chain along the way. I believe motives are in doubt along the way. And if you aren't ethically unimpeachable all along the way, I'm not going to just 100% swallow what you're selling me. So I have problems with the entire story all the way down the line. One of the interesting things that occurred during the um, brouhaha around the DNA discovery uh, or results being released back um, in 2007 um, and 2008 is, is um, Beth Wills' role in all of this, the genealogist. She and I first talked back in 2007 and off and on for a couple more years after that until something occurred in the relationship between Trustrail, Beth Wills, and Dr. Foran to make her completely sever all connections to this uh, group, uh, to, to the team. She appeared in the U.S. documentary as a talking head interview, but when the documentary played in the U.K., all of her parts were cut out. When I asked her about the, the, the suggestion, I believe it was when, um, when she had um, suggested that maybe they had discovered Cora Crippen living with um, Bertha Mersinger in New York City, under the assumed name of Bell Rose. It was discovered through the work of myself and Deborah Arif that Deborah Arif discovered that Bertha Mersinger was not the same Bertha Mersinger. I discovered that Bell Rose was not Cora Crippen, but someone completely different. 
um, I asked her to look into the research that we had been doing. And she curtly replied, I have nothing to do with this case or these people anymore, generally, in a nutshell. So something, something occurred in, in this team to make her take a step back, to make her start to distance itself. And it did occur between the time that the results were first announced that the DNA was, did not match Cora's and the time that it was announced several months later that the DNA was actually male. So think of that what you will. It may be something completely different. Who knows? Maybe she, she decided to leave uh, the team and have nothing to do with this uh, case for a completely unrelated reason. But I found the timing of her um, departure from the uh, media um, spectacle that was becoming this grip and DNA test pretty interesting. Before we found out about the whole foreign thing, which is new information, like my thing on this was I do not discount just basic human error. Like science to me is my religion. You know, I believe in science, but I don't discount um, one human error, human greed, the desire for fame, the desire to be a part of it. And the desire to just, like, what does a 100-year-old case matter? You know, does it really matter in the grand scheme of things? And to me, going back to, there is no reason to test the DNA of a 100-year-old body in a basement, except you're trying to prove a foregone conclusion that, that doesn't need to be proven because the conclusion seems obvious to anybody. A wife goes missing, there's a body in the basement, a man absconds with his mistress. Like the, the answer seems obvious to anybody. It's almost too fantastical to believe that this, that, the, that this answer would have come up as anything other than being Cora's. And so the mere fact that it did come up as being not Cora's, honestly, seemed suspicious to me. Just yeah. it, 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 it's like too it beggared belief to me that it that it didn't. And I want the answer like, OK, well, then there should have been a better answer than, well, we just don't. You know, it and it leaves too many unanswered questions, which doesn't mean it can't be true. It's just I needed better results than what I got. Yeah, I think it's um, it's probably worth saying that although I'm not persuaded by this book and I'm not persuaded by these these results that I'm I'm also completely clear that miscarriages of justice do occur uh, because they do the question really is what, whether this was one of them and and in my view that that case is not made out by the author it's also true to say of course that you know as as John pointed out you know there's it's always worth I think in these things, looking around and seeing who's on your side, who's on your team. Um, and if the person who's on your team, um, and <laughs> it's Bruce Robinson, you know, the, the author of the most inconsequential ripper book ever, um, then, you, you know, you, you have to wonder whether you're on the right side of history at that point. And I, and I do get it. And I, and I, and I know, uh, you know, I'm sure Bruce Robinson will say, we have to, you know, look at everything's a miscarriage of justice and, and you know, and the Freemasons, et cetera, et cetera. All of that stuff, which is, uh, which it feels to me like we're in a sort of 
in a cultural phase at the moment where if you say yes but maybe not everything is a miscarriage of justice and maybe not everything was the freemasons then then the accusation is well you're you're just on the side of the establishment you're part of the problem and actually i think it's i think it is much more nuanced than that i can i'm completely happy to say not happy but i'm completely clear that miscarriages of justice do exist but we have to know which ones they are rather than assume either everything is or nothing is so so i actually i do think that um that the author in this case i'll, I'll say something for him because actually i don't think i hated this book quite as much as maybe the other three of you did but you know one of the things jonathan you'll you'll remember this probably better than me but one of the things that i think came up in in the documentary or around the same time was the so-called chicago letter where uh, someone writes from Chicago to say, I am Cora Crippen and I am still alive. Thanks very much for, you know, for thinking of me. And actually the author doesn't use, uh, that is that that letter is not from Cora Crippen, right? I think every, every, every researcher has established that that is not a genuine letter from Cora Crippen alive and well in Chicago after the finding of the remains. But the author doesn't have recourse to that letter. Now he could, I think, have thrown that in and said, well, actually, we know that she survived because there's a letter that says so and swept under the carpet all of the concerns about that letter that, that invalidate it as a legitimate source for historical understanding. Um, and he didn't do that. And I think that's fair enough. And I think there is an effort here in this book to, although the, I think the thesis comes first, which is we think that uh, Crippen is innocent and now we have to tell you why um, rather than let's explore whether Crippen is innocent and come up with a conclusion after we've found out what the evidence is but I think he does there exclude something that in theory could support his thesis if he wanted to misuse it which is absolutely the, the right the, the right strategy the right approach as a historian so I think fair play to that he's not just chucking everything at it and hoping that uh, that no one will notice what works and what doesn't work. I think there is some sort right. of... He also, he also... I think, it's, I think that is fair enough. He also dismisses the um, Bell Rose um, uh, theory. That, yeah. um, but, but the way he does that is problematic. He, he has such high regard for Dr. Foran, devotes a whole chapter to Foran's genius. But when he goes to address the um, Bell Rose, the theory that that bell rose uh was cora crippen having immigrated to new york to live with uh her sister uh bertha mersinger uh he says um the way he writes about this in his book is um what and i'm quoting it what seemed to be an extremely tantalizing hint was recently raised in a television documentary the discovery that in the 1920 census, a Bell Rose appears, apparently living with Cora's sister Bertha, listed as her cousin. There is no other record of Bertha having a cousin by so provocative of a name. Where did she come from? Could this be the evidence of Cora in America after 1910 we've all been searching for? Sadly, no. Whoever Bell Rose may have been, she's living with the wrong Bertha. Bertha Mersinger was by this time Bertha Smith, present and correct on the 1920 census, living with her second husband and daughters. The Bertha Mersinger, who is living with Belle Rose in 1920, has nothing to do with Cora or her family or our story. Now, he just refers to that as a tantalizing hint recently raised in a television documentary. 
But he doesn't tell us what documentary that was. That was the documentary that came out starring Dr. David Foran. And the Bell Rose, the tantalizing hint of the discovery of Bell Rose was first suggested by Dr. Foran's staff genealogist, Beth Wills, when she came across Bertha Mersinger's um, listed in the 1920 census. So he has no problem praising Dr. Foran in one chapter, but when it comes to dismissing some of the things that Dr. Foran's team were claiming um, in the documentary, he just vaguely says it was in a television documentary. He could, as Mark said, he could have easily said, oh, this bell rose, this is a, a exciting clue, maybe, you know, and disregarded the research done by ripperologists that discounted, that actually found the out that Bertha Mersinger was not her sister, and that actually found out the Bell Rose was not Cora Crippen. So he takes that on board, but that doesn't provide the source of the information. And um, he does that again. Should I go on my little rant, Allie? Since I was talking about, um, I think we researches. need at least somebody else to rant to balance out mine because I still I have so many like rants about the writing. One of my um, one of my biggest pet peeves of late is when research done by ripperologists or really anyone is maligned or mistreated or misrepresented in books, and in this case, so I discussed about how. Uh, Beth Wills and Foran touted the uh, existence of this possible Bell Rose that was disproven by ripperologists. And the author of this book then alludes to that discovery without giving credit to anybody who made the discovery. A similar thing is done with the question of who Cora's mother was and who Bertha Mersinger's mother was, which was a, a big deal. Um, because when they Basically, so you want me to do my rant now? I want to do my rant now just to get it in, Allie, or, or, or not. Just rant, rant. Don't, okay, don't ask so, for, never ask permission to rant. It totally dilutes the effectiveness of a good rant if you ask okay, for permission. So, let, so let's talk about the genealogy of Cora Crippen and, and, how, and how that led to the, the genetic testing and how, and, and I'll read you the part. Uh, so first of all, I'll read how this guy uh, the author of the book uh, presents this in the book. He says, commentators with a vested interest in Crippen's guilt have tried to suggest that there are gaps in the genealogical record or causes to mistrust the accuracy of the research of Beth Wills, right? There are none. It seemed that they were onto something when it was found out that on Cora's marriage certificate, her mother's maiden name was given as Mary Wolf, while on Bertha's, it was Mary Smith, okay? So in Bertha's, a uh, descendant is who ended up being tested. So here we have Cora's marriage certificate giving the name of her mother as Mary Wolf, Bertha's marriage certificate giving her mother's name as Mary Smith. Obviously, you can't have um, mtDNA results that would match if you're testing the uh, descendants of people who aren't related matrilinearly. 
if this was the case that Cora's mother's was named Wolf, then they were not full sisters, right? In 2007, while checking out this with Beth Wills, she sent me an outline of her genealogical research, which the relevant part said, quote, Cora Crippen, born Cora Makamowski in 1873. She was the daughter of Joseph Makamowski and Mary Wolf. So the genealogists working for the forensic science team confirmed that Cora's mother was Mary Wolf. In 2010, over three years after the documentary, Dr. Foran released a case report, as I mentioned earlier, in the journal Forensic Science, stating that Cora Crippen was born in Brooklyn, New York in 1873, the daughter of Joseph Makamoski and Mary Wolf. I had my doubts about the Mary Wolf, um, the identification of Cora's mother as Mary Wolf. So in my Ripper Notes article that I wrote way back in 2007, I said, her research, Beth Will's research began on the assumption that Cora Crippen's mother was Mary Wolf and the product of a first marriage to Joseph Makamowski. Beth Wills then goes on to trace Mary Wolf's second marriage to Frederick Mersinger in order to locate a name that is to her the first appearance of the future Cora Crippen. Apparently, no record exists of the marriage between a Mary Wolf and Joseph Makamowski, nor do any birth records exist for Cora at the time I wrote this in 2007. So solid genealogical proof that Cora is the daughter of Mary Wolf seems to be lacking in this case. Nevertheless, Ms. Wild is satisfied enough to research a second family of Mary Wolf, the Mersingers, and trace them through time in order to find a living female descendant of who she believes without solid evidence to be Cora Crippen's birth mother, okay? So when the author of this book says that we had causes to mistrust the accuracy of Beth Will's research when there were none, the mistrust stemmed from the fact that Cora's marriage certificate said her name was Mary Wolf, Beth Wills said that her mother was Mary Wolf, and Dr. Foran himself in his journal of forensic science article said that her name was Mary Wolf. Okay, now what eventually happened was that Livia Trivia and Deb Arif got a hold of this case, and Cora's birth certificate was discovered. And proved that Cora's mother was actually Mary Smith, the same mother as Bertha. The pro again, the problem researchers faced at this time, and which brought into question the validity of the tests conducted by Michigan State, was that Cora said on her marriage certificate that her mother's maiden name was Wolf. So after a period of several weeks, Debs and Livia after finding Cora's birth certificate, a document that was not available to Michigan State University or Beth Wills. So Dr. Foran, Beth Wills, and his entire team kind of tripped and stumbled their way into testing the right descendant. Basically, for them being lucky that two wrongs of theirs ended up making a right. So if it wasn't for Deborah and Livia's research and process of discovery that the author calls in this book commentators with a vested interest in Crippen's guilt and whose research questions he declares in that same paragraph as quote unquote total nonsense, this author would undoubtedly be still be calling Cora's mother Mary Wolf, just as Beth Wills did and just as his hero Dr. Foran did.
I mean, and it, it is, of but, course, worth pointing out that he says commentators with a vested entrance when there is no comment, you know, there was no vested interest. Vested and yet, the, John Trustdale had a vested interest in having exactly. the DNA tested in the first place. Did, does Deborah Arif have in, in, in Crippen's guilt? Absolutely zero. Um, but the way that this author is condescending and, and the way that he relates to his readers what quote-unquote commentators were looking into and omits who those very commentators were and what they discovered, he lies essentially. And people who lie about the research conducted by ripperologists are assholes. And what this guy wrote about Debs and Liv is garbage. And so that part of the book, because I was involved in that whole process of discovery really rubbed me the wrong way. He, he, he was making it sound like he knew all along that Mary Smith was the mother of Cora, um, which is absolutely not true. And it just flatly mischaracterizing and dismissing the research of Deborah Arif and Livia Trivia. I just could not believe it. I don't think you can properly characterize something that has multiple sources and citations as a rant. I, I thought that was an excellent rant. Yeah, that, that, that was that was the most well-researched rant I've ever heard. That, yeah, that, was, <laughs> that was the best rant we've had on this podcast today. Oh, <laughs> I'm going to have to step up my game. <laughs> I get, I yeah, get yeah, so yeah. upset. You know, if your rant isn't peer-reviewed and fully, fully uh, sourced and annotated, Ali, it's not, uh, it's not good enough, I'm afraid. Dang it, my, my rants are just... Ranty. I'd I'd like to uh, well I I'd like to facetious well half facetiously ask something. Um, now, okay, assuming that this DNA evidence is um, uh, is correct, the, the DNA analysis is correct, and the body is male, has anyone suggested that it could still potentially be Cora because she does have quite a masculine face in the pictures. Um, has anyone suggested that before you throw something at me? It's, I actually uh, wondered the same thing. I'm not even going to lie. Like, I, I'm not even jumping on your thing. Like, I was wondering the same thing. If it wasn't contamination, if she was possibly like an XXY, um, you know, so when when the first thing in my rant, I talked about how he had mentioned her um, absent ovaries. And I was like, what the F? And like, my first thought was, so was she like an XXY? Like, did she not have ovaries? Was she? And then I thought, like, was she possibly, you know, and that was one of my thoughts. And then later on, he finally did disclose that she had had an oophorectomy. And then I was like, okay, well, had it actually been an oophorectomy or was it? Yeah. And so I had wondered, we'll, we'll never know. There's no possible way of, of ever proving that one way or another, but it's not beyond the realm of genetic possibility. Um, I, yeah, I want to drag us away from the D, away from the DNA um, analysis um, and to the one of the things we said at the start about how um, th this book seems to assume that you you know it's not good for a beginner to the Crippen case. Um, and I, I was having a quick look at Matthew uh, Conniam's bibliography. And I think it could be his background is the reason for this. So this appears to be his first true crime book. And he seems to be um, a film historian. So looking at his published books, I can see an Amazon and Waterstones. Uh, we've got the annotated Abbott and Costello. Movies are a conspiracy, selected essays on cinema. That's me, Groucho, the solo career of Groucho Marx. 
Dracula, A.D. 1931, Bella Browning and the Birth of the American Horror Film, The Annotated Marx Brothers, Egyptomania Goes to the Movies, and Jane Austen Inside Her Novels. So I'm, I'm thinking maybe the reason why he's written this book, assuming you know all about the Crippen case so you don't need a decent introduction to it, is because in his previous works... That's the automatic assumption. You know, no one's going to buy a book on Abbott and Costello about watching, you know, at least most of their films. No one's going to uh, buy a book on Groucho Marx without, you know, knowing about, you know, watching the Groucho Marx films. You know, no one's going to buy a book on the Bell Lugosi Dracula film unless you watch the film. So I, I think that could explain his, uh, what, why it's almost as if this isn't a book about Crippin, it's a companion or an annotated book about books about Crippen, almost. Well, it's a it's a polemic, isn't it? In the end, yeah. and I think that you know that sort of we're, we're trespassing into the territory of Bruce Robinson again, and uh, there is a difference, I think, between historical writing and polemics. And you know, Matthew Conium clearly is has concluded, to his own satisfaction at least, that Crippen was uh, wrongly convicted. And he's cross about that. And I think, okay, that's fair enough. But, you know, you're, you're, all the hard work is still ahead of you at that point because then you've got to sort of substantiate that case, which is what doesn't happen. And when he says, um, I think, apart from talking about the potentially vested interests of someone like Deborah Arif, who has clearly no vested interest whatsoever, he also talks about um, Nick Connell being pro-conviction or some some sort of form of words like that i mean i know nick and i and i've read nick's work and uh, nick's not pro-conviction but he is someone who will you know who will go to the national archives and have a look at the case files for example and trawl through the newspaper he is gonna he, he is gonna substantiate his point of view based on the data with the data that's there it is intriguing to me that Matthew Cunningham doesn't seem to mention the case files at the National Archives at all. Yeah. Um, which would be, I would have thought, a good starting point, even if you're not doing the general, you know, Crippen 1.0 introduction to the case and you're writing in, um, something which is a bit more specific than this, uh, as specific as this. But also, his, I have to say, Matthew. I'm not sure I would be able to read a, a, a Crippen book written by Nick Connell, say, and find that the list that this list of newspaper sources, the Brisbane Courier, the San Pedro Daily News, the Illustrated Sydney News, the Manning River Times and Advocate, Palkeepsie, is that how you say that? Eagle News, Evening Bulletin, Buffalo Courier Express, <laughs> Express, Duluth Evening Herald. Some of his newspaper choices. Matthew Conium's newspaper choices are very eccentric. Yeah. Um, and this, I'm not quite sure how that's happened either. So I think there is, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of with you, John. I think there is, there's a kind of deficit here in terms of how we access source material and what sorts of source material we access in order to build a case. I'm not saying those newspapers are necessarily wrong, but, you know, Duluth is not on the doorstep of Hilldrop Prison, and and I and I wonder why we're using that as a kind of as an example of something that we ought to uh, to trust or or take at face value or take or at least take the author's word for that um, when other sources, competing sources, might be available. Yeah, the two oh, things. Oh, the three, shade. Three, 
three things really. One, I did have to look at look up what the polemic was um, just then. So uh, that's my new word of the day. Thank you, Mark. Um, Number number two, uh, don't give me that look, Ali. <laughs> I'm man enough to admit when I have to look up a word, especially when Mark uses it. Um, I, I know. I, it I is. It is. There is no shame in looking up a word that is provided by Mark Ripper. Exactly. Exactly. I know. And at least you know, trying to slip it into writing, you know, when you only half know what it means. It's, you know, I don't know. I don't know where this this reputation that I have comes from, actually. <laughs> Um, number two, when I was reading it, I was actually one thinking there's a lot of press sources here. Uh, so the, there are actually um, the National Archives do have files on the, on the case. Then it's not like they were destroyed. Voluminous like files. Yeah, no, 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 no. There's 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 thousands of pages of documentation there. No. Um, but and accessible to anybody who can get as far as Southwest London. So yeah, that, that seems. That's just, to me, as you know, as someone who has researched and written books, that just seems to me to be a strange omission because that is, that's your starting point. As a researcher, that's your starting point. Yeah. yeah. That is I mean, not to say, that is not to say that you can't think critically about what you see there. Yeah. But, but you should. Do you think that that um, had an effect on what he included in the book and what he left out? Was it a lack of knowledge that caused him to leave certain things out? Or do you believe that he might have been cherry picking evidence and sources to match his theory? And I ask this because circling way back to a time that the listeners have probably already forgotten, Mark was talking about the problems that the author faces in trying to argue out all of the evidence that pointed to Cora being the the remains in the cellar including things like uh, the hair curler and then he makes the absurd suggestion uh, basically his theory is that there was or one of his, he he throws out throws out an, a number of theories basically and just that figure tells the reader to decide which one sticks um, but one of the theories he posits is that the body in the cellar was not cores it was a man but but Crippen placed items that belonged to Cora on the surface of the grave or somewhere, you know, to where, you know, oh, her hair curler was, the, well, so let's put, put Cora's hair curler here. Let's put Cora's, let's put the, put the pajama top here in order to kind of make it appear that it's Cora's remains when, it, when they really weren't. He goes on to suggest that the pajama, if it was buried in the, uh, it, with the body at the time that the body was buried in the basement shouldn't have been in as good of a condition as it was when they pulled it out. It should have been completely annihilated, the pajama top. Um, whereas at trial, they were able to present it and the, you could still see the pattern that existed on the pajama print and, and read the label and things like that. He has this wild idea that this piece of article of clothing would would be completely unrecognizable as a pajama top given the length of time it, it uh, laid in the grave, which of course is absurd because we all know that textiles in graves, even ancient graves, survive for a vast amount of time, right? Um, but there are some things that I don't remember him mentioning that were also found in the grave which you would um, 
know about if you read a little bit more about the case or read the original police files or things like that, such as there was um, a female's woolen undervest found in the grave. And what the police uh, referred to as woolen combinations. I don't know female clothing, what a combination is particularly, but if you refer to a female's woolen undervest and woolen combinations, that leads me to think that maybe they were related ensemble pieces for a, a woman's um, under attire, I don't know. But anyway, I don't believe that he uh, he doesn't he doesn't mention those. I don't believe. I think he actually did mention. I remember him mentioning the combinations and and they are um, undergarments. I, I I do remember him. I believe mentioning the combinations. I don't remember the um, vest. I don't believe I remember the him. Thing, the thing that he's most excited to mention is the discovery of a necklace, which is reported in various. Uh, you know, far-flung newspaper reports and then sort right. of vanish. But again, this is this is about how we sort of use our source material, I think. Yeah. What, what, what was discovered, not a necklace, a a man's handkerchief that had the two of its corners tied in a, in a knot with hair c contained in the handkerchief. So when he mentions the necklace, he also throws in things about how maybe it suggested that she was strangled in her sleep or things like that. But then, but then he goes on to say that, oh, well, the necklace somehow disappears in later press reports and at the trial, similar to the, the gun, which was misreportedly stated in some far-flung newspapers was found um, in the cellar. I believe a gun was actually found in a closet of, of, uh, of the house not in, in at the grave. I believe that's in David Smith's book, Supper with the Crippens. But nevertheless, so I wondered if this uh, men's handkerchief that was tied in a knot could have been what was misinterpreted or misreported as a necklace, not a neckerchief. And um, it still goes into the whole possibility that it was used to garret um, someone possibly, you know, as a method of strangulation. I, I think this this book is the sort of book that, you know, I think the assumption is made that the, the necklace appearing in some far-flung newspaper reports and then disappearing afterwards from, from similar reports um, and from subsequent accounts, that there must be some sort of, that, that must have been done deliberately. There must have been some sort of purpose to introducing the idea of the necklace and then taking it out again. And actually really what that I think is about is newspaper tittle-tattle, mishearings, misreporting. Mis I mean, it doesn't have to have been a deliberate attempt to deceive the world at large. It's, it's just the way newspapers get things wrong. I mean, he does that all the time. He, he tries to make you draw inferences where there really isn't really much of an inference to draw. Like, you know, especially like with the necklace thing, like the jewelry is an interesting thing because like the necklace is a specific thing where like he tried to make it seem like the necklaces disappeared from the newspapers for a very specific reason, which was that, you know, what if that necklace had been one of the ones that Ethel had been seen wearing around except they never really specify what necklace had been found so who, you know so that's just it's it's a ridiculous claim but he tries to to make these sort of like 
grand inferences on on so many aspects of the case, specifically when it comes to, to things like um, behavior, which you can never do. And, you know, he'll he'll do things like, would a murderer have done, you know, would Crippen have murdered his wife and then given her jewelry to his mistress? Would a murderer have paraded his mistress around town? Like, like we think somebody who's got no moral qualms about killing somebody would have drawn the line at dispersing her jewelry. Like he makes these very odd sort of, uh, uh, these kind of arguments, like when you talk about would a guilty man have done this? Would an innocent man have done this? These kinds of arguments to me are always hilariously specious because it's like, like look at Scott Peterson who killed his pregnant wife. She's missing and he sells her car and adds the entire porn package to his cable bill. Would a guilty man have done? Well, uh, clearly he did. You know, you can't make people who try to infer guilt or innocence based on the behavior of somebody in the aftermath. It's like, you. oh, so he'll kill his pregnant wife, but he wouldn't add the porn package to his cable yeah. channel. That's beyond yeah. the realm of possibility. Like you can't but make inference at, on something there's... like that. And the word the word would in a sentence um <laughs> make, makes me shiver uh, yes. when, when uh, unfortunately there's this uh, there's a brilliant part in a later case a trial of norman thorne who um killed his girlfriend and then um cut her into pieces and buried her outside um outside his hut in cobra in sussex and someone appears for the a, a witness appears for the defense and says, you know, I know Norman Thorne, I've known him for some time, and uh, I don't think he could possibly have murdered someone. Well, at the time, Thorne was, Thorne's defence was, it had, had evolved, right? It, initially, he was saying, I know nothing about where my girlfriend is. And then, uh, then oh, well, and then maybe I, I do know, and maybe she's, you know, maybe she killed herself, and then I cut her up. So his defense was kind of moving towards, I didn't commit the murder, but I did cut up the body and hide it. Um, so it's all very well for this person, this this defense witness to come along and say, I know Norman Thorne, I don't think he's the kind of man who would commit murder. But the barrister for the prosecution um, in cross-examination said, uh, so you don't think he's the kind of man who would commit murder? Do you think he's the kind of man who would, who would cut someone up? And of course, the defense witness said no, because he felt he wasn't the kind of man who would cut someone up. But he was admitting having cut it, having cut yeah. someone up. So it's it, the word "would" only takes us so far because actually, you know, you might not think that someone might murder someone or cut someone up, but 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 actually, they might do both of those things. Um, it's too easy to make the assumption that we know how people would behave in these extraordinary circumstances. Actually, if you look at how people who commit serious crimes do behave, they don't behave in always in perfectly rational ways. Cotton does the exact same thing, I think, really. He's, he, he literally says, if, um, you know, if, if he did accidentally kill Cora, would he be the kind of man to then hide the body? Or if he accidentally killed someone as a result of uh, a botched abortion, would he... That, well, yeah, possibly, you know, we don't know. Right. Yeah. And, and he, and, and, you know, when he writes about Cora, uh, about Crippen's first wife, Charlotte Bell, um, whose brother provided a lengthy interview to the press um, concerning a letter that she had written to him prior to her mysterious death, Charlotte Bell, 
Crippen's first wife, saying that Crippen um, performed, was performing operations on her and one day he's probably going to kill me, is what she said. He dismisses that out of hand, like completely un untrustworthy, you know, but then he goes and, you know, in the following couple pages, pulls out other really dubious uh, sources and, and claims as his fact. Um, I just wonder if the guy, uh, what do you think about his suggestion that I believe he makes several times in his book that Crippen wasn't familiar with the drug hyosin and uses Ethel um, um memoir or tell-all book, I believe, uh, that she came out with, where uh, she said that Crippen um, wasn't familiar with the drug and we never used it because it was a new drug and all this stuff. Um, when you, if you go back and research Crippen's writings in medical journals, homeopathic journals, um, going back, you know, 15, 20 years prior to the murder of Cora Crippen, he's talking about hyosin and, and its applications and its usefulness. And he loved hyosin. He recommended it for everything. And, and, and so did the author just not know that? Did he not? He he seems to have gone back and read some of, about some of uh, Crippen's um, medical uh, uh, career and you know the organizations he was a member of, the doctors he worked under, things like that. But but although the period of time in Salt Lake City when uh, when uh, court when Charlotte Bell was murdered, there's a very there's very minimal information in the book about that when he worked under Dr. James Dart in Salt Lake City, um, which which was when he was using a lot of hyosin in his. Um... I found it very light on early biographical detail. Like he clearly, like he started off with the murders and then I, I wish he would have done a better job of, of fleshing out the early days of Crippen and not just his, you know, sort of shyster. Like he, he clearly went into his, his career, but I wish he would have done a better job of both his early marriage and his early days. And he didn't do any of that very well. And I thought that was a huge gap in, um, in the book as well. Like he didn't do a very good job at all of the biographical details of Crippen. Um, one of the reasons, like, I feel like I need to read another book <laughs> on Crippen well, is again, because of some of the things he just kind of drops in there and left me hanging. Here's actually a question, and this might be going off topic, but you guys know a couple, you guys know more about it. But like one of the things that truly annoyed me about this book, and again, because this is the thing, like something will catch my, my brain and then I don't get an answer for it. And then it annoys me. So there's, there's a part in here where he's talking about Ethel after the trial and Ethel left and went traveling. And then um, he says that her children said that she went to Orlando, which caught my attention because having lived for several years in Orlando, it, you know, caught my attention. He, the, the immediately following sentence, it says, it was peculiar to return to so emotionally charged a location. Now, this annoyed me because he had never previously mentioned that Ethel had been to Orlando much less that it would have been an emotionally charged location for Ethel. I, and I was, what? I, so, I, was, I was wondering if he just meant the entire North American continent would be emotionally charged because that's where Griffin was arrested. <laughs> <laughs> All of America I, 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 is emotionally I, charged for her? You said that. And then when I came to read that, I was like, that's what Ali was on about. I was like, 
I was like, the only thing I could think of is, you know, because it was the it's the entire continent is now emotionally charged. <laughs> but see, this is this is what I'm talking about when I'm like, this book needed an editor because I read that and immediately I was like, what the hell is he talking about? Where did this come from? How is it? Emo- how is Orlando emotional? It's the happiest place on earth. It's where Disney World is. What does he Disney World in those days? They have Disney World. I know. It, well, I know. But still, <laughs> I, I was so annoyed, and I'm like, how? And I literally, and again, I I've had had a terrible headache for forever and I'm like did I miss the part so I again I start word searching I start flipping back through I'm like what part of the book did I miss where they were in Orlando and something terrible happened that she's returning and so I had to go back and reread and then I wasted time trying to find out what I had missed and of course I hadn't missed anything he's just a terrible terrible writer who drops crap into his book like this that confuses the reader who then wastes hours of their life trying to find out what the hell he's talking about and nobody knows and again i want to remind people that if you're an american you're going to spend 22 dollars and 49 cents to buy the kindle version of a book that's going to annoy you and piss you off i'm 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 wondering if he actually means that canada was be with the emotionally charged but because he's mentioned all, because the, the full paragraph is, um, we know that Ethel did leave the country for a short while after the trial. In her various memoirs, she describes this as on spec return to Canada, where she attempted to start a new life, but soon tired and returned. So far as I know, there is no hard proof of this beyond her own word, though her children vaguely recorded talking of having been in Orlando. On the face of it, it seems peculiar for her to return to so emotionally charged a location. I'm wondering if he's on the book Canada and it's just the way he's constructed by men- mentioning Orlando there. It's kind of confused matters. And again, that means he's a terrible writer who needs a better yes. editor or an editor at all. But again, $22.49 for the Kindle version of this nonsense. It's so- funny how he says, um, you know, oh, you know, well, we only have Ethel's word in that part. But then in other parts, he takes Ethel's word as gospel. Um, he does that a lot too. You know, he uses Crippen's words. He he kind of picks and chooses when he wants to believe something that's that someone says and when he doesn't. He throws doubt on her her credibility in one section, and then and then he'll you know say that Crippen never used Hyosin because it was too new according to Ethel in another section. He did the same thing with Dew. We should believe what Dew says about the Jack the Ripper case. And then he goes on for several paragraphs explaining why you shouldn't believe what Dew says about the Jack the Ripper case. It's... Yeah. Yeah, it's inconsistency. And yeah, it's... Yeah. I, I'd like to quickly go back to the, 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 the higher scene um, and the um, the toxicology element of the um, uh, the inquest and the trial. So again, this is something that he seems to think is suspicious, the fact that when they find out that Crippen has bought uh, purchased hyacinth they then discover it in the body as if it's something you know conspiracy you know if this is bruce robinson you fully expect him talking about freemasons and but brother do writing to brother spillsbury and telling him to you know, you know yeah I, I don't, I don't it, because they they found it because they were looking for it yeah exactly my, my understanding well that's not how it works <laughs> yeah my understanding of toxicology at the time was there wasn't like Oh, let let's send this down the lab and get you know CSI to look at it and stuff like that. Yeah. It be like check for this poison and they do a specific test for it. Mark's probably more knowledgeable 
um, on on this than you know because of his recent uh, writing outputs. Yeah, um, there is a specific test for hyacinth, but yeah, you know, it's like no, uh, that's what Trustrail and Foran did. You know, they were looking some, for something and they found it. Yeah, um, it's not you know, but but detecting hyacinth in the remains is this, I would assume a specific test that would have to be conducted. That it's not it's like you know testing you know it's not just going to come up as part of a, a survey of all of the chemicals involved. I would imagine. Yeah, it's it's not it's not a Theranos test where you can put a, as far as I know that you can sort of put a sample in, and it will tell you four hundred different things about this sample. I, I, it's uh, incidentally nor can a Theranos test. However, um, they're looking for for vegetable um, vegetable alkaloid poisons and hyacinth being one of three that would test uh, according to us according to i'm trying to remember from the book one of Good three they might might discover but it had a different appearance under the microscope to the other two and that's how they identified it as hyacinth and not the two other um, variants and for matthew conian that's insufficient and but that's actually how I think that was done at the time is that you had to have a look at it under the microscope and it was either one thing or the other and it wasn't the other and you know we can all we can all um bemoan the absence of a more sophisticated forensic milieu in 1910 but they were were you know remember the first conviction for for murder on the basis of fingerprints is only five years earlier yeah. So we've worked, we're, we're at the very, this, this goes back to something, Jonathan, that you were saying on when we were chatting beforehand about the, the sort of uh, the, how, uh, how allopathic medicine and homeopathic medicine were almost under, well, they were under the same umbrella at the time. And there was no, there, there was, there wasn't sufficient sophistication to be able to tell one from another and, and distinguish one from another, at least in their sort of, in their intentions and their impacts. It's uh, who knows what might have happened if this case occurred today. Um, but my suspicion would be that taking everything into account, including the circumstantial evidence, that the, the person who they thought was guilty would still be guilty. And there would probably be forensic, further forensic evidence to back that up that no one would dispute. Yeah. <laughs> that, that seems like a good place. Like that, yeah. So are we going to give it star ratings? Of course. Are we, are we also going to comment on if we think Crippen did it or not based on the evidence presented in this book as well as part of the story? Oh, on the evidence presented in this book? <laughs> no, because I don't necessarily think... Oh, I mean, well, you can. Absolutely. You can do whatever you want. Oh, yeah, I'd like, I'd like, yeah, okay. Yeah. So, I think I will. I will. I will. Yeah. All right. So let's give our final thoughts and our out of five star ratings. We will begin with Mark. What are your final thoughts and your out of five star review? So my final thoughts, this is not a book that doesn't have problems. There's, there's, there are clearly issues with the thesis, but I think that I am going to, I have, I have got some time for it. So I have got there is some there are some indications it's not always consistent but there are some indications that it's not just an exercise in bad faith that you know if if the, the author uh, could have thrown in ideas around the Chicago letter for example uh, he really he really could have done that and he and he's obviously there's some sort of selectivity of evidence there so I don't think it's a bad faith exercise I think it's wrong-headed but it's not 
deliberately uh i don't think it's deliberately misleading in the way that uh you know some that some other uh, sometimes sometimes we we see that with with other books so i'm i'm kind of on the i'm not convinced by it i'm not always impressed by the by the attitude that the author takes to his readers which i think is unpleasant sometimes and i think that we, we i think that the problems with it outweigh outweigh the good parts but on the whole uh, i didn't i didn't hate it as viscerally as other people appear to have done and i'm going to give it I'm going to give it three stars. Thank you. And we really do appreciate you being here and you are welcome anytime. Uh, enormous fun. I am, of course, uh, only really interested in what Stripe thought about it because uh, Stripe gave me yes. a, a very poor review last time. I want to see, I want to see it. I will, where's, I will go and find your bookmark so I can show you what Stripe did to it. Um, you know, I'll, I'll go find a second. So um, Stripe, um, yeah, I was trying to read it this morning on the sofa on my iPad. Uh, I have now actually finished the book as well during um, one of the, during Jonathan's rant, I managed to finish it. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, Stripe, Stripe was trying to knock the book out of my hand um, this morning, so I don't think she liked it, but she hasn't actually physically destroyed it, but it is a digital copy on my iPad. So maybe if it was the... Uh, the hardback copy she would have. Um, so I, I, I think Stripe gave this one um, a three out of five, I think, you know. Um, my Based on, you know, durability. Uh, my review. Um, so Ali, before we started, um, messaged asking what our knowledge is of the Cripping case on one to five, one knowing nothing. And I ranked myself as being a two or a 2.5, you know, because I familiar with some of the basic details but by no means am i intimately acquainted with the in and outs um uh, of the case so um after reading this book i don't think i've got much more knowledge than i started with and the knowledge i maybe do have that's extra is stuff i've had to actually have to go and look up myself because i've been confused so that that's not a great uh, start really a lot of the problems you mentioned about the sources um, you know, it, it, it's thoroughly footnoted, the book is, but all the sources seem to be press reports and really bizarre ones, as Mark said. And, you know, the Sydney Herald, the Sacramento, whatever, you know, the, not, you know, not even British ones local to the, you know, people who'd be in the um, in the inquest listening to the testimony um, is, is another major problem there. And uh, in terms of being convinced, you know, if Crippen did it, um, I think, you know, the... The prosecution, you know, to find someone guilty of a murder, you have to be convinced beyond all reasonable doubt. And with all the circumstantial evidence still there, you know, I don't have any reasonable doubts as Crippen did it. So I still, you know, I, I, I this book has not convinced me whatsoever. So I'm going to give this book two out of five um, because it's, you know, it doesn't, it's not marketed as far as I'm aware, and it doesn't seem to be a specialist book on the Crippen case you know it's not like giving a ripperologist newbie a copy of the bank holiday murders and saying here read this book on the case you know this does seem to come across as a general book on the case which should be approachable to a relative newcomer so that th that's yeah that's why I've given it uh, such a low review there all right Jonathan Mingus um I um 
have a laundry list of problems with this book that I could have gone on and on and on about. Um, I had issues with um, how he treated the death of Charlotte Bell Crippen, Crippen's first wife. I had problems with um, how he suggested that Cora's um, abdominal scar may have, may have been the result of an abortion, which is nonsense. Um, I have problems with, as we discussed in the show, how he characterized the evidence and the reasoning by and what he left out about uh, his uh, belief that the the scar um, on the tissue sample was not a scar, but a fold in the skin. He didn't go into sufficient detail to convince me that he knew um, what he was talking about. I have problems with, uh, and then nitpicky problems, if those aren't nitpicky enough. I have problems with, he goes into some suggestions about what, what motivated uh, Crippen to dress uh, Ethel Nave up as a little boy. And he makes a few suggestions about popular books at the time or something like that. When um, actually the Martinettis who had supper with the Crippens the night um, before uh, Cora disappeared forever, they actually did a theater um, sketch in the part of their vaudeville routine in which two criminals end up murdering a police officer and then then later on one of the criminals dresses up as the other criminal's uh, son and so Crippen would have been familiar with the the idea of uh, dressing um, someone up as a little boy and, and masquerading as her son in effort to fool the police um, because um, their, ne their next door neighbors the Martinettis um, actually performed this uh, little routine. Uh, so I think that's the actual source. He, did, he didn't bother to go in and mention that. I have problems with, as Mark said earlier, uh, about um, him characterizing a homeopathic medicine in the 19th century uh, through the uh, 21st century person's lens, not, um, not realizing um, that um, homeopathic medicine at that point in time was as legitimate, if not more legitimate, than um, allopathic medicine. Uh, so the author's refusal to call him a doctor and all this stuff, this you know holier-than-thou attitude he takes to that position, really just shows a bunch of ignorance about what homeopathic medicine and what homeopathic remedies, what what important and large um, part uh, they played in society. He seemed to be totally unaware of any of that. And then, uh, but ultimately, it was just his, the, the tone he took with his readers, um, the tone he took with his sources, although, although the, we've mentioned the footnotes from Duluth and Timbuktu newspapers being cited. and other places, he would say, armchair detectives say this, commentators with a vested interest in the case say that, true crime enthusiasts have said this, but he doesn't name those people. He doesn't cite where they say this. He, so anytime he tries to present his counter argument to what universal they have said, he never has the balls to say who says it, unless it's a published book like by Nick Connell or something, when he mischaracterizes Nick Connell's differentiation between homeopathic medicine and then later quackery. Uh, in Crippen's career. You know, he, he attacks Nick Connell by name, but in uh, most other places, he refuses to name who he's actually arguing against. And I found that very off-putting because me being of a paranoid mind makes me think that he's talking about me or Deborah Arif 
or Olivia because we don't know anyone else who was talking about that stuff at the time. So, so that was unsettling. So I did not enjoy the book. It hit, maybe it hit too close to home and I had too much personal involvement in some of the events he's describing. So um, I thought it was terrible, I hated it. Um, I give it, um, I'll give it a one star, which is generous. Okay, um, so I came into this book with, I would say, 0.5 of knowledge in Crippen. I am probably leaving this book with a one in knowledge in Crippen. I did not appreciate the writing. Um, I'm not a person who overly romanticizes the state of humanity, but I was put off the book pretty much from the prologue when it started off with him equating the fate of Crippen's uh, Madame Tussaud's waxwork as being on equal footing with the fate of Crippen himself. You know, like he, he literally starts off the book with the fate of Crippen's waxwork figure hung in the balance as being equal to Crippen's own life. And I don't really care about the lives of murderers, but even I thought that was a little bit tasteless, like a, a waxwork statue. Is, is not the same thing as a human life. And I really care nothing for human life whatsoever. And, and, and I found that tasteless. There was, a, there was just bad writing throughout. And, and he has the ability to be a good writer. He does. Starting a book is hard. It, it, the be, beginning a book is hard. All writers struggle to begin a book. Even Mark, no offense to Mark, but like beginning a book is hard. Like the first few pages of a book is the hardest thing to do well. And so I always give a little bit of leniency in beginning a book. There were a few pages towards the middle where he, he actually had some good writing, which shows to me that he could be a good writer if he found a good editor. I did not enjoy the writing in this book. Uh, and for me, that's, that's the thing. I, I need good writing. I need good editing. I found the tone condescending. Uh, I found his performance to be inauthentic. He should have taken a cue from his uh, review of Cora's uh, performance and found an authentic voice, which he did not. And I was not convinced by his argument. I'm also going to give it, uh, I'm not going to give it a three. I'm going to give it probably a 2.5. It might have been a three, if not for the fact that it cost $22.49 for the Kindle version of this book, which I know I keep harping on. And I know is not an author choice necessarily. It's a pen and sword. A publisher decision, but still, this book is not worth $22.49 for the Kindle version. It's probably yeah. not worth $2.49 for the Kindle version, to be perfectly honest with you. But uh, yeah, that, that price annoys me. It really annoys me. I'd pay $22.49 for a book that was as well written as Mark. There, see, I'm going to flatter you some more. Um, but not for this crap. I, I absolutely. Well, I'm surprised you guys are giving it as high of a rating. Not that we're allowed to argue with each other's star rating. You can argue. Three, it's, I'll argue with like, you about your homeopathy thing because homeopathy a three, is a three would suggest better than average. And and uh, wouldn't it? I mean, two point five being the median. I'd say, I'd, I'd, I'd say it's um, three is average, really, isn't it? Three is average. Two is below is average. One is, uh, you know, I don't know, and zero is just, you know, not for much. Yeah, can we talk about the price of this book for a second? <laughs> Mine was, I, I got a I, review I, copy for free, so. I, 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 hate, I, hate, I hate reading on the Kindle. I hate reading on screens. I hate it. Um, and so the, uh, so I went to look at buying a physical copy of the book. 
So the, the RRP for the hardcover version, bearing in mind this is only a 256-page book, the RRP for the hardcover version is £25. Mm -hmm. And, okay, it's not that much on Amazon. It's £17 on Amazon. But for yeah. a 250-page book, this. that's a lot. Yeah. I mean, it, it, the, the cover, £25 UK, $49.95. It's no. ridiculous in America. In the US. No, it's absolutely. ridiculous in America. And, and even, even the, the Kindle version cost me eight quid, which is a lot for a Kindle book. Yeah. And, and again, it is $22.49 in America for the Kindle version and 40, for the hardcover version. It's ridiculous. And I want to say to our American readers, it is absolutely 100% not worth it. If I were judging based purely on the price, I would be judging it a 0.5. I've got to say, I, 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 I hope, you know, the I do hope the author is getting good percentage of that price, and it's not just pen and sword price gouging, because as far as I'm concerned, that's a ridiculous price for what you get with the book. Well, this concludes this episode of Off the Shelf. Hopefully you enjoyed the episode slightly more than we enjoyed the book. And while I know my vocabulary isn't always up to snuff, and I can mangle many a word with mad abandon, and I frequently sound like a hillbilly on meth, at the very least, I don't charge you $22.49 to listen to my ramblings. I think the true issue I have with this book is that this case has all of the elements of a really interesting story. A missing wife, a body discovered in the basement, theater people, drama, fleeing fugitives, ridiculous disguises, brand new technologies that aid in tracking down the dastardly duo. In short, there is everything a capable author needs to make for a really fascinating book. Unfortunately, we didn't get that book. We got this one. Mr. Crippen, Cora, and the body in the basement, which is, at the end of it, a hard pass from me. But we hope that you will join us for our next book club selection, which will be The Poisoner's Handbook by Deborah Blum. And until next time, thanks for listening. Mean your ovaries just haven't gotten up and walked away at some point, Ali? I know. And like, I looked, I just stopped and looked at the book at that point. And I, I literally, like, I said out loud, I'm like, where the fuck are her ovaries, Matthew? <laughs> <laughs>